0: The legacy of the Larsons on the lake spans from 1871 to a terrifying collision on Halloween night, 1935. This family built nearly 300 vessels from skiffs to a steamer and even subchasers for World War I. Their statesman father was a captain that was awarded a rare life-saving medal in 1880, and he and his son survived a remote shipwreck on northern Lake Huron. I'm Rick Mixter, and I'm sure you're as captivated as I was when I first heard the Larson family story. That's why it's today's
1: Great lakes mix Stories.
0: If you've ever visited the Maritime Museum in Detroit, then you've been impacted by the maritime contributions of the Larson family. Before there was Dawson Museum, there was a blue nose schooner and museum ship called J.T. Wing. It was Captain Lewis Larson that brought the ship to the lakes in 1935. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. We need to start with Louis's father, James Larson, who was born in Denmark in 1855 and immigrated to the United States in 1871. Nearly 150 years later, his great-grandson still carries on the namesake.
1: Well, I'm um, James Allen Larson. Uh, I'm the fourth James in a row. And my father was James Allen Sr. My grandfather was James Lewis Larson, and his father was James Larson.
0: Larson originally moved his family to Racine, Wisconsin, where in 1880 he made headlines rescuing seven sailors from certain doom on Lake Michigan. On October 16th, a small fleet of ships had sought shelter below the aptly named Wind Point. The small Canadian Bark 2 friends was the last to get into North Bay and it was so crowded that she had to drop anchor at the entrance of the harbor around three o'clock in the afternoon. The winds dragged both anchors to the north side of the bay and immediately swung broadside to the sea and tipped over onto its starboard side. Lake Michigan soon stole everything from her deck, including their lifeboat that was crushed on the rocky shoreline. Fisherman James Larsen had watched the two friends hit the rocks, but he and his assistant Ole Rasmussen were busy taking another yawl ashore from a team that abandoned a different schooner in the bay. Larsen asked the rescued captain for use of his boat to save the crew of the stricken two friends, but the skipper refused, saying it would be impossible to survive the trip. The captain did offer a shotgun with a rescue line, which was fired at the two friends, but the ship was nearly a football field away, and the rescue rope fell short. As night fell, snow began to swirl, adding to the difficulty and improbability of rescue. The desperate crew of the two friends climbed the mast to escape the rising waters, and the crowd on the beach started to abandon the rescue, instead saving themselves in the raging snowstorm. Soon it was just Larson and Rasmussen on the beach who heard the cries for help from the wreck. Captain Larson knew his own boat had been damaged beyond use, and he searched frantically for another way to the shipwreck. Local captains agreed it was suicide to go out onto the bay, and many boats were refused. Larson finally convinced the port superintendent that he would pay for his 14-foot boat if he wrecked it in the rescue attempt. The tiny craft was hand-carried through the woods, and Larson tied a rope around his waist as a makeshift seatbelt. There was only room for one person to ride the crashing seas, so Larson made seven trips solo to the two friends. It was nearly swamped five times as each man was lowered from the jib boom into the yawl. Rowing the boat kept him from freezing to death in the snowstorm as he took the last man off and headed for shore. Numbed and convinced they would be dead by morning, the survivors offered Larson money for his efforts, which he heroically declined. The United States Life Saving Service awarded James Larson for his actions with their highest award in June of 1886. The magnitude of that storm made headlines when it was learned the passenger steamer Alpina foundered with over 80 lives. Newspapers say as many as 60 schooners were disabled by the winds. Larson's grandson says the story is preserved in an engraved commendation from the Treasury Department.
1: The medal is in our family. And uh, it's, it's passed down, passed on to uh, the sons. When you read the article and you think about it and the, the rough sea and everything, it really is it's very special. I'm not sure that many people could go out and do that. Uh, and I'm sure it was cold and wet. And uh, Not sure we could do that today.
0: Captain Larson and his son Captain Louie would again be in the newspapers in 1921. Scheduled to pick up cedar posts in northern Lake Huron, they sailed aboard an old schooner called the Edward Skeel. The Skeel had quite a life, including time as a Christmas tree ship in Chicago. This final run would take them from Chicago up Lake Michigan through the Straits and into Georgian Bay, Ontario. The 17-day trip would be the last for the old schooner, first built in Milwaukee in 1856. Six men and a photographer would make up the crew of the Skeel, which hit some bad weather as they passed Mackinac Island. They met a tugboat and a huge raft of cedar logs off Barry Island, near the middle of Manitoulin Island, Ontario. A steam barge helped pack the cargo hold with posts, the first mate Oren Angwall trying his best to keep up as they constantly jammed, fitting into the small hatches on the skeel. The photographer, Harold Prips, snapped a quick shot of storm clouds converging on their location and the wind suddenly changed to the worst direction they could for their formerly protective cove. Soon the winds were raging at 70 miles per hour from the northeast and the skeel's anchor was dropped to prevent it from hitting the island. The stew meant for dinner crashed from the stove to the floor and the captain told his guests to pack up his camera and bags. No longer needed for dinner, the oilcloth was taken from the galley table and used to wrap his brand-new camera up safely. Prips was an adventure seeker from Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. It turns out he loved to fish, and he often wrote stories for his outdoor club that featured his photographs. He had met the younger Larson on a fishing excursion earlier that season, but the trip didn't go so well. Prips and his wife, along with Captain Louis Larson, had to run off the cabin cruiser when it caught fire at the dock. Unbelievably, Prips was quoted in a newspaper to say he was also on a Christmas tree schooner that nearly sank that same year. The Skeel would be his third shipwreck in only a matter of months, and he was going to chronicle every moment in photographs. Pictures early in the voyage show Captain James handcrafting a yawl boat on the deck of the Skeel. Larson is exactly what you'd expect as a schooner captain, with a full white beard, a cap, and overalls. A series of snapshots show him planing the boards and assembling the ribs and planking until the yawl boat was finished. Another series of photos show it floundering in gale force breakers, slamming into Berry Island. Pripps felt the distance to shore could be made by swimming, but the mate threw a log into the surf and the helpless crew watched it get dragged under in the breakers. Stick to the schooner as long as you can, he advised the photographer. Without their lifeboat, Captain James ordered the men to tie several cedar posts together with a 15-foot ladder to create a makeshift life raft. Crewman Dewey Stevenson brought a chuckle to the crew when he walked onto the poop deck wearing his Sunday finest. Captain Louis and Dewey, I'm not making this up, rowed the raft ashore to retrieve the boat. In the meantime, the waves were slamming into the skeel and pulling the anchor line taut with a terrifying jolt. It finally snapped the thick anchor chain and the second anchor was dragged further towards the rocky shoreline. By 4 p.m. on September 25th, all was lost. 180 feet of anchor line had stretched out and the crew was abandoning the skiel. Prips and crewmen Eli Mueller and John Lachlan were the second team ashore. The captain and mate Orrin Angwall were the last to leave the stricken schooner. Prips had grabbed stick matches before he left and put them in a dry tin for protection from the waves. They ignited a fire with plenty of cedar to make it burn. Louie and Dewey dried their clothes and then started walking the shoreline to find help. A nearby farmhouse offered dinner and shelter until the team could find their way back to the United States. The elder Captain James died only a few years after the skeel was lost. In his career, he had sailed and fished the lakes, earned a gold life-saving medal, and was even elected to Wisconsin State Legislature. The grandson of Captain Louis remembers that it was Louis that took the family business from fishing to freight.
1: I did read a, a diary that he had, uh, that he kept, and it was quite businesslike, but, uh, you know, we went here, we went there, we loaded this, loaded that. But he was a, a, a private captain. Uh, he had his own ships and it would last maybe a couple years or something, then he'd maybe do something different or get another ship. But they hauled uh, freight in and around the Great Lakes.
0: Louis Larson's time on the skeel no doubt paid off when in 1935 he was asked to bring a Blue Nose gaff schooner to the lakes from Connecticut. The D.O. Webster had run aground on Norwick Island and was sold for $750 to a Detroit businessman. Louis's experience in sail was extensive. His dad was a captain, and he'd been sailing with him since he was 10. Louis got his first command at age 19 and had sailed many boats his dad had built in Wisconsin. Larson and a crew of eight sailed the Webster from the east coast into Quebec to pick up a load of pulpwood. In all, it took 48 days to sail from the ocean to Port Huron, Michigan, most of it against the wind. The 140-foot schooner was renamed J.T. Wing for a Canadian businessman, and it was dubbed the last working commercial sailing vessel on the lakes. In 1938, it was transferred to the Sea Scouts to train hundreds of young men on the nearly lost art of crewing a schooner. World War II shut down their operation, and the wing was used briefly to haul wood again. The schooner was tied up in 1948 where it sat on the bottom of the St. Clair River for over two years. Refloated in 1946, it was donated to the city of Detroit as the area's first museum ship. Twelve years later, the J.T. Wing was condemned by the fire department and set a fire in 1956. Dawson Maritime Museum has since taken its place as the fantastic Maritime Museum on Belle Island. Only a few weeks after bringing the Webster to the lakes, Larson took a job on a steamship for Gravel Motorship out of Buffalo. He was in command of the Wisconsin-built Ormadale when it encountered thick fog near Alpena, Michigan, on Halloween of 1935. That misty haze had plagued Michigan for two days, and Larson hadn't had a wink of sleep. Nearing Thunder Bay Island, he gave command to his first mate, Captain Charles Cox, ordering him to run for a half hour and then make a turn to the south for a course to Harbor Beach. Larson then went below decks for a much-needed nap. Cox was an accomplished sailor, fresh off a shipwreck that he was captain on. His command then was on a whaleback, a submarine-shaped ship that critics call a pig-nose because of its unique bow. The Henry Court was a powerful whaleback that was frequently used to break ice to open the shipping season. It had been wrecked at least twice before its stormy run on Lake Michigan in 1934. Here is Captain Cox in his own words describing the gale that pushed the whaleback into the North Pier destroying the Henry Court forever.
1: I'm glad that all the members of the crew are safe and, and uh, nobody was hurt in any way. Sorry that the, the accident of the Coast Guards losing their man. And I think we've done the only thing that possibly could have done to save the lives of the crew.
0: Two years after the court was lost, Cox was first mate on the Ormadale on his birthday blinded by thick fog about eight miles from Thunder Bay Island. He was getting ready for a turn to head to Michigan's thumb when they heard what they thought was a passing signal from another freighter. That signal was actually a horn sounding that the Norwegian vessel Viator was trying to back up to avoid an imminent collision with the Ormadale. Ormadale had tried to turn to starboard, but it was too late. The bow slammed amidships into the viator, crushing the cabin of the first mate and missing the sleeping chief engineer by a matter of inches. Luckily, the mate was on the bridge and not in his bunk. The chief suffered severe injuries to his head and chest, and the crew had to dig their way into his stateroom to get him to safety. Captain Cox on the Ormadale kept the nose of the ship into the hole on the viator to allow all 34 sailors to scramble to his ship and escape the doomed freighter.
1: The reason given for the collision was uh, they were using the Viator, which was, I think, a Norwegian ship, uh, Saldy, uh was using ocean signals, and they weren't, they weren't the uh, correct signals for the Great Lakes. So there was confusion, they did collide, and uh, they did get all the people, the Viator was gonna go down, so they did get the people off the Viator. Then they. My dad said they got uh, noticed what the cargo was and they grabbed uh, some cases of, uh, turned out they were sardines, and uh, they grabbed a few cases of sardines and, and got them over to their
0: ship. Once the survivors were all aboard, Larson and Cox backed the freighter out and Viator slipped beneath the cold, still waters. Neither ship had a radio, so the news of the collision came from the nearby freighter Cedarton, which had witnessed the crash. Larson brought the survivors into Port Huron, where the chief engineer was evacuated to a local hospital. Shipping companies immediately demanded action to prevent saltwater ships from sailing without experienced Great Lake pilots on board. Previous collisions had required a single pilot board at Montreal, but it was now obvious that a lake pilot should always be on duty, and that would prompt the U.S. and Canada to require two pilots on foreign vessels visiting the lakes. Cox and Larson were investigated and each received a suspension in their license. Captain Cox, who would later become a Lieutenant Commander in the Coast Guard during the war, would get the most time of 90 days suspension. Larson would be sentenced for 60 days.
1: They went to uh, Marquette and lived for a year and he had a, a fish market, I believe, and uh, um, they, he was hey, fished for a, for a year and then went back to the lakes.
0: Viator remains on the bottom in what is now an underwater preserve. It's upright in about 165 feet of water, and it's been salvaged over the years for its cargo of canned salmon and sardines. Ormidale went to the ocean during the war and was renamed Bluefield, sailing for a country in Central America when it was hunted by a U-boat off the coast of North Carolina. Nazi submarine U-576 found a convoy of 24 ships about 30 miles off Cape Hatteras and managed to hit three ships with four torpedoes. Only the former Ormadale was sunk, and the crew managed to escape the ship before it went under. U-576 had been damaged in an earlier attack, and it was believed that's why it accidentally surfaced in the middle of the convoy after their attack. The response was immediate. Two planes dropped depth charges, and a merchant ship shot holes in the U-boat until it slipped under in a telltale oil slick. Forty five men went down with the submarine, which was found after a five year search in August of 2014. It's a rare sight to have a submarine and the ship it sank lying only a thousand feet away from it. This could be the end of our story, but for years the location of Larson's schooner on Georgian Bay had eluded me. It prompted an impromptu drive to Manitoulin Island to do some inquiries at museums and visit the airport to see if any pilots reported a shallow shipwreck off Berry Island. The family of the captains that survived the shipwreck don't believe there's much left of that ship.
1: Yeah, I would imagine, though, that because it's wood and uh, the the weather and time and things, there's probably not much of it left, but uh, who knows? I don't know. You're... You're the diver, <laughs> you might find out.
0: Little was found and I visited several other shipwrecks I had known of from aerial surveys on Google Earth. I put together a short video on YouTube and three years later received a response from a man who owned a hunting cabin on the bay. He sent a picture of the frozen bay and said little of the wreck remained. It's gotta be deeper this way, but I think if we go in we'll find some more debris it's just beyond the snorkel depth. Yeah. I returned to Manitoulin in the fall of 2018 and my son and I did some diving. With the hunter's help, we found hundreds of artifacts from the skeel, mostly nails from its hull, pieces of block and rigging from the mast, and a dead eye. On the shore, a small section of keel rested on the rocks. Obviously, the main wreckage of the skeel was still hidden in the lake. But at an old farm, we found something remarkable. Remember the anchor line that snapped in the 1921 gale? On the scrap pile was an iron hawser, the large metal pass-through that protects the wooden schooner from the heavy anchor chain. A hauser from the shipwrecked skeel. Somewhere in the bay, two massive anchors remain, with the rest of the keel from the long-lost skeel. My dad always was trying
1: to. It was talking about going to uh, to find there. Evidently, two anchors on the skeel. And he thought he knew where they were. And he always talked about, ah, let's we should go up there and try to find those anchors and salvage them or do something. I don't know, but it was, it really just was talk because we never did go there. And, uh, but he always kind of lured me with the talk about going to find the skeel anchors. And, and uh, but that's, that's all I know really.
0: One thing he did know was that his mother didn't want him to follow in the family tradition on the lakes. All three previous James Larson's sailed, but perhaps it was the shipwrecks or the tattoo on his relative's arm that stopped any encouragement that his father shared to take to the lakes.
1: Well, my dad is always talking, well, I'll get you a job on the, on the lakes. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, was summer jobs I was thinking about. And my mother always never got too excited about that. She, I don't know... <laughs> If she thought I couldn't do it, or if she thought it might be too wild and crazy for me, um, or she thought I might fall overboard—I don't know—but she she never encouraged him to continue because I'd say, "Yeah, Dad, give me, you know, see what you can do," and and uh, but I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what she told him, but I never did it. I'm Rick Mixter, and this
0: has been Mixteries. You can see photos from these stories on my website lakefury.com. Stop by the online store and support our mission to share stories of the lakes by purchasing a DVD or book on maritime history. If you're passionate about these stories, consider joining the Great Lakes Lighthouse Keepers Association or the Great Lakes Shipwreck Society. Membership keeps you in touch with the latest research and fantastic places you can visit to experience Great Lakes history. Your comments on the show are always appreciated. Higher ratings bring more attention to our stories, so please be generous if we deserve it. It's your vote that you want to hear more Great
1: Lakes Nick stories.